Great is our Lord. Great is our Lord. Oh, we love our college students. So we are, let's hear for our college students. You're going to hear this morning. Very good. I told you. No, we, we do. And, uh, you know, I think one of the questions that college students probably, correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine the question that you probably hear more than anything is, what are you studying? You get that question a lot? What are you studying? And what a fear-inducing question. And if you're not sure what you're studying, isn't there this anxiety that, that rings up inside of you that says, I don't know. And, and you, just, you just grasp for something. And I want to encourage you at the very beginning here is we don't ask you that question because we want you to be anxious or uncertain about what your future holds. We ask you that because we as older adults are keeping our options open, trying to see a good idea that we could also go back and study ourselves. But really, in our lives, isn't that question, what are you studying? What are you going to do? If you have a fixed answer, if you know what your response is, if you, if you know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, where you're supposed to be, it is a wonderful feeling, isn't it? To know you're, you're in the hand of God doing what you're supposed to be doing with the people you're supposed to be with, it's an incredible feeling. But on the other side, if you're uncertain about what you're doing and you have this anxiety inside you that says, I don't really know with great confidence what I'm supposed to be doing or, or who I'm supposed to be doing it with or where I'm supposed to be doing it, it can be an anxiety-ridden concern. In our text of 2 Timothy, as we approach finishing the first chapter, Paul gives Timothy an incredible insight. He clears up any mis misunderstanding about how he's supposed to handle the gospel. And so he writes to Timothy here at the end of this chapter. Remember, this is the last correspondence that Paul, who's, who's mentored and developed and trained up Timothy like a son in the gospel message, this might be his last correspondence with him ever. And he wants to make sure Timothy understands in this, in this small but vital letter that he understands what he's supposed to do with the gospel. If he hopes to finish the ministry race that God has set before him, he must grasp this understanding of our text this morning, these limited verses of how he's to handle the gospel. And that God cares how he finishes his race. And he's going to provide for him two examples of two men that have not finished their race of ministry well. But then he's going to counter that with a positive example of this one individual who possibly is sick or has died at this point who has finished the ministry well. And his desire is that, that Timothy would take these words and they would plant them into his life, that it would grow roots from his feet as he would apply them into our lives. And so, so, so what do you and I do with this today? The same application stands for us. That as disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, if we do not handle the word of God with care, if we do not defend and build our lives around the gospel, we too can find ourselves drifting into something else that we never imagined possible. But if we understand this, and if we commit ourselves individually and collectively to live this out, not only will God be glorified, but disciples of Jesus Christ will be made and our feet will be rooted regardless of whatever storm 
will come our ways in the months and years ahead for the glory of God. So as you have your Bible, let's begin together as we look first and foremost in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to see this first abiding truth that we are commanded to guard the gospel message. We as believers are commanded to guard the gospel message. And, and about this, we see two particular elements. And the first we'll see in verse 13 is that God cares how we handle the gospel message. God cares not just how I do as a pastor, he cares how every one of us handle the gospel message. Let's look at verse 13. Paul, writing to Timothy, he says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. How to do so? Do so in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul, remember being an apostle, he passes on to Timothy, not his office of being an apostle, but he passes on to Timothy the content of the gospel. It's important that we understand that as, as, as Protestants, of, of, of believers in the authority and sufficiency of the Scripture, that the power is in the content of the gospel. The gospel means good news. It's good news because there's bad news, and the bad news is that all of us come short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners against a holy and just God. Every one of us. We deserve the wrath of God. Because he is holy and good and we are broken. And even the good things we do are broken before God. And yet God in his great love for us. While we were yet sinners, he would send Christ Jesus who would be the perfect God-man. He would live a sinless life and he would lay his life down on the cross for us. Taking our punishment on the cross, but he wouldn't stay dead. He'd fulfill all the demands of scripture. By the power of God, he'd be raised from the dead. And he would ascend to heaven and he will come again soon. And, and the hope is this, regardless of who you are or what you've done, you can have hope and forgiveness and eternal life if you will but abide in Jesus. If you will trust yourself to Jesus, you will be saved. That's the good news. That's the content we're to handle in such a way that our life is worthy of spilling our own blood for it. Not the blood of others. That's the mark of a Christian, and our call as believers is not that we're willing to spill others' blood for what we believe, but we're willing to have our blood spilled for the sake of guarding the gospel message. Paul tells Timothy to handle this gospel, defend it, guard it, build your life upon it, to do so in such a way that you handle it with two words, faith and love. I want to highlight one of our ministries here at our church family that you may not be familiar with. It's called our Buddies Ministry. Is Amanda Johnson in the room? You want to stand up? Stand up, Amanda. Sing a special for us. No, she's joking. Very good. Yeah, very good. We've got Amanda over here. Uh, it's just a wonderful thing to be able to embarrass her. I just love it. It's one of my favorite things to be able to possibly do. It's not very easy to do, though, is it, Amanda? No, it's not. It's not. But I did it, didn't I? Yes. All right. That was our goal. All right. Church dismissed. Uh, no, we're still together. You don't get out of here that easy. Uh, you can be involved with our buddies ministry. It's, the email is buddies at gracebiblechurch.com. But here's what buddies is. We're talking about handling the word of God, handling the gospel message with faith and with love. It's a special ministry to, to, to individuals who have special needs, K through fifth. And it's a ministry that we try to keep a one-on-one -on -one ratio with these kids to love them and to invest in them and to, to teach them the elemental teachings of the gospel, not just the message, but also in how we love them while they're here, depending on their their learning abilities. So we love them on Sunday mornings, but, but Amanda has this vision for this ministry to be something even more. 
that throughout the week we want to be able to love these families that have these kids that have incredible hearts. But it puts a strain on their, on their marriages and on their lives because it becomes so consuming in their time. And so perhaps a way that we can love them and, and be a part of this ministry to bless these people with the love of the gospel is to be able to, to maybe just help them fold laundry. To spend some time to wash them so the parents can get away and, and just eat a meal together once a week or something. It's an incredible ministry that I think really models this idea of how we handle the gospel with, with faith and with love. If you would like to be involved with that ministry today, don't let today go by without emailing buddies at gracebiblechurch.com. Not only do I want to embarrass her, but I want to make her so busy that she, she, she sends me a nasty text message later on. That's one of, my, one of my goals there. But you and I as believers are called to herald the gospel and hold it with faith and love. The things that we love, we are willing to suffer for. Isn't that right? I myself am willing to, to have my blood spilled for my son and my, my, my child, my children to be, and, and my wife. And you would do the same for yourself. You have areas in your life that you say, I will bleed over these things. As a church family, we have essential beliefs of the gospel that we are willing to lay down our lives for. Those that, that, that pledge themselves as members say, yes, we hold these essentials and we will die for them. We are unashamed of them. Regardless of what the world might say, we are unashamed of them. We will suffer for them. And Paul tells Timothy here, Timothy, remember, where, where's Paul writing from? He's writing from prison. He's in chains. What does Paul tell Timothy to do? He doesn't say, put together a heist and break me out of here. He tells him what? The gospel message? Hold on to it with faith and love. Herald it, speak it, build your life on it. Even if you also end up like me in jail, love the message, love the word. By God's grace, may we never be a people that become so accustomed to hearing and singing and speaking the gospel that we lose our first love of the good news it's about. So Paul cares and he tells him, Handle the word of God with, with love and with faith. And as he goes on, he says that this, this truth that, that we have in our life, that God empowers us to guard the gospel message. God cares how we handle the word, but don't worry, God empowers us to guard the gospel message. It's not, it's not just us, but it's also the spirit of God in us that empowers us to guard the gospel message. Look at verse 14. We do this by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. The Holy Spirit indwells every single believer. You've received the Holy Spirit upon repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The Spirit, he comes and he indwells you and he, and he convicts you and he comforts you and he leads us and he testifies about Christ. The same Holy Spirit that inspired the scriptures is the same Holy Spirit that, that lives within us and testifies about Christ. And what's he say? By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, do what? Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard it. How as Christians then are we to guard the gospel in our daily living? We're to do everything we can in our lives to build our life upon the gospel, consistently remembering the gospel, speaking the gospel. You see, every single day is a new moment to apply the gospel by the power of the Spirit in a new situation. So if you are married, it's another day to be able to apply the gospel into your marriage. 
to aim for forgiveness and softness of heart, to be bold, to be faithful, to live for purity and gentleness and self-control. Every day is a new opportunity to live out the gospel as the Spirit convicts us to guard this message. And I want you to sense a tense in this text. You see what he's saying? Timothy, you guard the gospel message. You will guard the gospel message because it's the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you that will empower you to guard the gospel message. Do you see this? You do this, and you will do it because the Holy Spirit empowers you to do it. You do it, but you're going to do it. But you better make sure you do it. Do you see both and? If we get lazy on one side or the other, we can make the mistake of saying, this is all my responsibility as though we're operating from our own strength and cleverness and endurance. We're not. As we grow as, as believers, we do so in the power of the Spirit who he enables us, he empowers us. But on the opposite, you can, we can make that mistake on the opposite side and we can say, I don't need to, to, to work at this because the Spirit will do it for me. And we can become lazy Christians. And so we're to do both. We're to, to work and to will for his good pleasure. But we also do so from the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. So you see this idea that there should be urgency and deliverance in our lives as believers, but on the other side, there's confidence and humility because it's not us who wills and works. You see, the, you see both of those. Let me see a head nod so I know I can go on because I can keep giving like a, I got like a dozen examples written down for how I can further do this. So for your own good and the good of the body uh, and the good of our nursery workers, uh, please just give me a nod if you got what we're going on here. Okay, very good. So in our lives as believers, we are to, to live in such a way that we guard the good deposit. God cares how we handle the word. We're to persevere in our faith in all things and resting in the power and the goodness of the spirit. He empowers us to guard the word. But secondly, as we look on to verse 15 and 18, we will be held accountable. As you and I aim to fulfill the ministry that the Lord has set before us, you and I will be held accountable for how we finish our gospel ministry race. We will be held accountable. And so now we have what Paul's going to give a negative example and a positive example. Two individuals that did not fulfill the ministry, they did not finish the race well, and one example of, of, of one person who went to great lengths to finish their race well. And here's the first one in verse 15. We see that some Christians will fall and trip other runners in their ministry race. They will, some people that confess faith in Christ, like these two men we're going to read about, that we assume are in some leadership position of influence, some Christians will fall, they will fail to guard the gospel, and they will trip up others in their way. Look at verse 15. The negative example first before the positive. He says in verse 15, You are aware, Timothy, that all who are in Asia, that's present-day Turkey area, they turned away from me, and among who are Phagellus and Hermogenes, these two individuals have turned away from Paul, and Paul's going to associate that with the gospel. Let me walk through this. I want to make sure I'm really clear in how we're unpacking this. Remember, Paul is in jail. In jail, in order to eat, you weren't served by the jail. You had to have people that came and brought you food, that gave you money to be able to live on. 
And so he's in jail, and these believers in Turkey ought to be supporting his ministry. He played some role in getting them the gospel, we'd assume. And these two particular leaders that are mentioned, they cut him off. They stop associating with Paul because he's in chains and criminals are in chains and it's shameful to be in chains. And they stop associating with Paul for whatever reason. It doesn't give us the motive. It could be fear that it would happen with them. They would link it back to them and the persecution would happen for their churches. We don't know. But what we do know is they cut off, they did the harshest thing of unfollowing, right, on social media. They cut him off entirely. And Paul says because these two men did so, the whole church in, in Turkey, in Asia, they cut him off as well. These men fell and it impacted a great number of people. You and I in our lives will hurt each other. I am not a perfect pastor. I will probably hurt you at some point. It's very possible. I'll forget something. I'll drop the ball at some point, possibly seriously. Or just by negligence or something will happen from our elders or our staff or other members. Perhaps you'll have a crisis that will happen in your life and we'll just drop the ball on it. And that will hurt you. But I plead with you don't allow that to be a reason that you give up on the body of Christ. Don't allow that to be a reason that you give up on the holding the gospel. Paul is deeply wounded by these two men. But he doesn't give up on the gospel. And he certainly doesn't give up on the local church. Because Timothy is helping to build up the local body. The applications for this text are never ending. Every one of us has a particular stone of influence in our lives. We don't know how big it is until it's dropped in the water. Every one of us has people that are watching us. Every one of us. And when we fall, the splash is larger than we realize. And the application of this example that is given for Timothy is use it as a scared straight moment to hold the gospel with your life, to breathe it into your marriage, to breathe it into your studies, to breathe it into your habits, to repent of sin that you find yourself attacking the gospel. In this letter, we're going to see it's literally for Timothy, false teachers in the church and outside the church that are splashing like stones that are assaulting the gospel message. Let it be a warning to us to make sure our identity is in Christ crucified and resurrected, our hope of glory. Let it be a reminder to us that our, our testimonies and our stories are not even about us, but they're ultimately about Jesus Christ and his glory. And if he counts us worthy to suffer in different seasons of life, then glory be to God because we will refuse to make this about ourselves. But it's for him and his glory 
the good of the body. This is our call as believers. Every one of us will have hang-ups that happen for the rest of the year. There will be something that will happen that you can stop and say, you know what, I'm done with it. The application right here for us as believers who are in the gospel, if you're not in the gospel yet, come to Christ. But if you are in Christ, let this be a sobering reality that just because I'm confessing Christ today doesn't mean I might not stumble at least in my application of the gospel tomorrow. But guess what? We don't run this race alone, do we? The Spirit of God, He indwells us, but He also gives us a body to run this race with, to encourage, to build up, to rebuke sometimes, and to be able to have somebody say, you know what, I'm sorry, I blew it, I love you. What an application. So we have this negative example, but we also have this positive example. See, some will, will stumble in their application and, and living out of the gospel, but others will earnestly run through the finish line. Verse 16 through 18. Now, I only ran track for two years in high school. I did jumps because that involved the least amount of running. That was my goal. But I went to enough of my wife's cross-country races and others to know that they would consistently say, run through the finish line. You ever heard that saying? We got some cross-country athletes here and then track athletes. The picture is that we want to run all the way through the finish line, so we don't want to pull up and give up right before we get to the line, but we want to run as though the race were another couple steps further. So Paul gave the negative examples, and now he gives the positive examples. Look at this, verse 16 through 18. And if we hope to do this, if we hope to be people who will finish well, who will run through the finish line and holding and guarding and living out the gospel, we're going to see that there's going to be a natural attribute that marks us. We are going to be a people who learn to relish adversity. We learn to relish adversity. Look at 16 and 17. He says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly, and he found me. The positive example of Onesephorus is, is given right now. And it's an example for Timothy to follow. Now, now I want to give us some historical background so we know how hard Onesephorus' job was. Paul, who's imprisoned, in Rome, the greatest city of the time, massive city. This is before GPS and MapQuest and all that stuff that's done a lot to help my marriage, right? Is this this navigational system? That was a joke, okay. Uh, no, I'll save that for the, for the next service. I'll make sure and edit that out. But that was a joke. There's no next service. All right, here we go. Gearing it up. Gearing it up. So imagine how hard this would be, how dangerous and how Financially burdensome, this task would be for an Esophorus to take on. He is going out of his way to travel to a city of great crime. There's no police, remember. There's no police yet. It would have just been a legion of soldiers that may be patrolling the area. And he knows that Paul is being held in a prison somewhere. He doesn't know where. And in Rome, only a couple streets were actually named. All the rest were these different streets that would just pop off of it that wouldn't have names. So imagine that you're going into like a New York City today and you're trying to find your friend with no letter, with no information, all you know is they're in prison there somewhere. And you're on foot and in any large city we know there's areas where you don't want to be and you're on foot and you can think where prisons are, it's probably not going to be the safest areas. So we don't know how long it took him to find him, but we know that he found him. 
He went to incredible depths and probably hardships to be able to pursue him. And what did he do? Paul was in a point of adversity in his life, a point of suffering for the gospel, and Onesiphorus didn't break him out of jail. He doesn't spring him. But what does he do? He searched for me earnestly, and he found me. And we assume then that he financially would have been able to support him while he was in jail, but he also probably just sat with him and loved him. Two great applications for us in this. Joni Erickson Tata, A Place of Healing, is a, is a wonderful book. She became a quadriplegic as a teenager, diving into the Chesapeake Bay, paralyzed from her shoulders down. Incredible woman, incredible testimonies of God's goodness and her faithfulness to the gospel. She made this statement in that book. She says, He, God, has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace became. Let me read that again. God has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his presence. Because our God is good and he is sovereign, there is purpose even in pain and suffering. We will either draw close to Christ than we've ever been before, or we will harden ourselves and drift. What's the application for you and I? There are people in our body who are suffering and who will continue to suffer, who will grieve. Maybe not for Christ in this way. So maybe they won't suffer for being Christians, but they will suffer while Christians. Do you see the difference? You and I realistically don't have a lot of fear of persecution right now as believers. We don't. We're not going to be beaten for being Christians, I'd imagine. So we may not suffer for Christ, but we will suffer and endure hardships as believers while trusting Christ. So we want to suffer well. How do we then take on the burden of encouraging others who are in a season of suffering? Well, here's some practical examples, I think, in the life of Onesiphorus. Be a person who able, is, just tries to show up. The ministry of presence is powerful. Show up. Let them know you love them. Let them know to keep trusting in Christ. Let them know that you're praying for them. You're praying for them. You're talking to the Lord about them. Let them know this is hard. And also, if you can meet some of their needs, meet some of their needs. We had a wise believer I was able to get some, uh, some lunch with recently. I enjoy doing that. Eating lunch. And while I was with him, he shared with me a situation of suffering that he had experienced, very serious. And I said, what can you tell me? What, can you give me any wisdom on how to better teach our people to deal with that? And he said, you know what? A lot of people ask me what they can do for me, and I felt, I just, it felt uncomfortable to ask them to do something. But I had some, some fellow church members who would just say, you know what? Hey, I'm going to cook up a whole other rack of ribs for you, and I'm going to bring it over to you tonight. Okay. Meet people's needs, like our buddies' ministries I mentioned a moment ago. When you see people that are hurting, love them, pray for them, try and sit there with them, and try to meet some of their needs. And that's the church being the church. That's what the world looks at and say, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But we are a people who, who embrace the reality that we are called 
to be making disciples of Jesus Christ, and part of that means leaning into adversity. Expect adversity, but lean into Christ through it. What will this do in our life? We will relish adversity, but it will also, as we see here from this man, it will render a legacy of service. Look at verse 18. It will render a legacy of service. It says, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Some would say that first Lord is likely Christ and the second Lord the Father. May the Christ, may Jesus grant him to find mercy from the Lord the Father on that day. And you well know, look at that, and you well know all the service that he endured at Ephesus. And we have no reason to think that Onesiphorus did this to be seen. But guess what? People were watching. People were watching. There are people watching every one of our lives as we claim to be followers of Christ, and Christianity makes no sense in this world. In a world that teaches survival of the fittest, the suffering servant doesn't make a lot of sense does it? But our hope is found in Christ. And part of what will be a testimony to the world is how we love one another in the gospel. Part of what will be a testimony in the world is when you and I endure hardships we never would have planned for and never would have chosen, and yet we abide in Christ even closer in the midst of the storms that come our way. You and I are called to leave a legacy of service not because we want to be seen, but because when you live as a servant, you inevitably will be seen. And when you're not around, people will know it because the one who modeled their life after the one they trusted, the suffering servant, the one who came not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, it will leave a fingerprint on your neighbors, on your family, on your co-workers, and on your friends. We don't serve just to serve. We serve out of a reflection of the goodness of our God. We don't serve to be lifted up by people. That's God's responsibility for us. We serve to serve as we live out the goodness of the gospel that is impacting our lives every single day as we lay down our preferences for the goodness of the King. What are our next steps with this? Two questions, two questions. Our next steps, first and foremost, is this. Have I ever begun this ministry race for the gospel? Have I ever begun this ministry race for the gospel? If you have not begun to run this race, if you've not entrusted yourself to the gospel, you can't guard it. That's your step today, is to come to Christ and trust yourself to him. We had several in their baptism class just a moment ago. If you'd like to talk about what it means to follow Christ, text us, fill out your Connect card. Email us so we can help you take that next step as you publicly demonstrate your faith in Christ. But give your life to Christ. Ask forgiveness of sins and surrender yourself to him while we even sing and share it with us so we can help you as part of the body. That's your first next step. The second question is this. How will my faith and love of the gospel be seen and heard this week? How will my faith and love of the gospel be seen and heard this week. Remember, the things we love, we're willing to suffer for. What's an area of your life that you could have an enduring spirit willing to suffer for as you lay down your preferences for others? I don't know the answer to that, but I bet you do. And you probably don't know the answer to that for me, but I know I do. But we serve a great God who helps us to take the next step. 
We serve a great God who took the first step while we were yet sinners to come for us, that he would become the man of sorrows. He is the one we worship. He's the one we sing to. He is our king. Would you pray with me before we sing to this king? Oh, Lord Jesus, you are worthy of our life. You are perfectly good, you are perfectly holy, and you are perfectly just. And that you would adopt us by faith alone in Christ alone. And you call us to be a people who build our identity around Jesus Christ as we follow him and as we pledge in our lives to make disciples. Father, we know that we can plan all the day long, but unless you work, Lord, we work in vain. We ask that your spirit would move upon us, that we would walk in obedience in our daily life and the hard things and the boring things and the routines of our life, that we would do them for your glory and your goodness. Help us to become more faithful men. Help us to become more faithful women who desire to make disciples for the glory and the goodness of God. Help us to be your people. We give you glory. And it's our privilege to be able to sing to our King who is not dead, but he is risen. He's ascended to your right hand and he intercedes for us. It's to you that we sing. In Jesus' name, all God's people said together, amen.